Hello and welcome to season two of Mindset Matters with Victoria Williamson, the podcast where we choose to look at life through a lens of resilience, presence, and gratitude. This year, myself and my inspiring guests are going to help you transform your mindset, improve your overall outlook on life, from relationships to friendships to career and everything in between. So thank you for tuning in and let's hop into today. Hi guys, happy January. Welcome back and welcome to season two. I hope you liked my little intro that I made for season two. January 2024, how are you guys feeling? It's a big year. I feel like it's a big year. I'm really excited and season two. Okay, I've got a lot of things in the works and I'm really excited for them and I hope you will be as well. Um, I'm working on some things that are going to help you bring more resilience, presence, gratitude into your life. And yeah, that's all I'll say for now, but stay tuned for some things because there's a few exciting things coming up and I'm really excited to announce them very soon, as well as a new segment that we're going to be having on the show, which is going to be dropping in February. Um, and I will not tease anymore. So yeah, I'm teasing you guys a little bit here, but I'm really excited. And I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you to anyone who's been listening to the podcast, whether this is your first time here, whether you've been listening since April when I started it. Um, thank you. I really appreciate you and I find so much joy in doing this. So here's to season two. Here's to a great year. I hope you guys are feeling good about this year. I hope you've had time maybe to set some goals for yourself, but also to be gentle with yourself and to allow yourself to ease in. They always say, you know, do one or two things at a time. Don't try to change your whole life overnight because you'll probably get overwhelmed and it might not work. Mm, I feel like there's something on my lens. Let me see. I probably shouldn't use this sleeve. Oh, it's still there. Okay, you probably can't notice it. Anyways, so today's concept, um, you can literally change anything about your life. A dive into Adler psychology, otherwise known as individual psychology. So I am a psychology graduate. That's what I studied in university. And I love learning about people, about the brain, neuroscience, um, and I recently read a book called The Courage to be Disliked. And the concept of the book is essentially a young person, the youth, who is talking to a philosopher who adopts the viewpoint of individual psychology or Adler psychology. And essentially this youth keeps going back and visiting this philosopher and trying to disprove and rebuttal all of his points about individual psychology and about this viewpoint of life. So we're going to kind of dive into that today, which I'm excited about because I talk a lot about how our mindset can change our life and I really do believe that. But some of the concepts in the book were a little hard for me to grasp and I want to kind of get into looking at it from different angles as I like to do we're not always just hey let's read it and agree with everything we see right we want to think about it from someone who is like this youth character who's kind of resisting 
these concepts. So we're going to kind of look into some definitions of what individual psychology is. We're going to look at Adler versus Freud because a lot of people are, are more familiar with Sigmund Freud and trauma and how our past kind of predicts or affects largely our future um, and the way we show up in the world. Um, so we're going to look at that. And then I'm going to share more concepts from the book. And I also want to compare it to a book I'm actually currently reading, which makes me really see it from the other side of it's, it could be hard to adopt individual psychology in a way. So that's what we're getting into. I'm really excited. Okay, so who is Alfred Adler? Let's get into Alfred Adler. Uh, I apologize. I'm going to be looking at my computer a decent amount for this one because I've got some notes, but yeah. That's just my little disclaimer. I'm still looking at you. I'm still paying attention to you. Don't worry. So Alfred Adler, Alfred Adler was a Austrian doctor. So he was a medical doctor, a psychotherapist, and he's the founder of the School of Individual Psychology. Um, he lived from 1870 to 1937, and a few points from the website of Adler Psychology or Adler University is that Adlerian psychology emphasizes the human need and ability to create positive social change and impact. So there's a large um, emphasis on social connection and the need to make a positive impact in our world. And kind of this idea that the more positive impact we make in society, the better we actually feel in our lives. He also talks a lot about feelings of belonging and being in community with others. Adler believed that the social and community realm is equally as important to psychology as the internal realm of the individual. So a lot of psychology looks at, you know, what's going on in our mind, in our brain. And he argues or believed that our community, the, our sense of belonging, the way we interact with others is just as important as what's going on inside. Okay, so it's really kind of a thera therapeutic approach that encourages individuals to seek out connection and to contribute to society. That contribution to society gives you the sense of purpose and therefore helps you feel better about your life, okay? Um, now, one big thing that's really interesting is the idea of trauma. So when we think about Freud, Freud's view in psychology was very deterministic, and what this means is that he believed all human behaviors um, resulted from specific events or things or experiences from the past okay so it could be biological it could be environmental or past experience and we've seen studies on this I remember a study we learned about was with a child who was like they kind of traumatized this child I think it was with loud noises they would really yeah, like this study would never pass today, but they traumatized this, this child where every time they would receive a certain toy, they would like pair it with a loud noise. And naturally that child became terribly afraid of that thing. 
And it got to the point where even just seeing that thing terrified the child, even when there was no noise. And okay, we could look at Pavlov and think about conditioning. Um, Pavlov is the one who conditioned dogs to start salivating just by hearing a ringing of a bell. So what he did was he paired the ringing of the bell and then provided the dogs food. Now at first, it was the food that made the dogs actually salivate because they saw it and they were excited. But over time, just the simple ringing of the bell signaled to the dog's brain that, oh, food's coming. So he would start to salivate even in the absence of food. Okay, so that is another angle of psychology where, you know, trauma or conditioning can exist. Now, what's really interesting to me in this book, The Courage to be Disliked, and this concept of individual psychology is that they argue that trauma doesn't exist. And I think that's a big deal to say because we live in a society where so many people talk a lot about childhood trauma and how therapy can help you uncover what your traumas are so you can heal your child, you know, your inner child, heal your traumas of the past. And this idea is very common these days that like, oh, everyone experiences trauma. Everyone has childhood trauma, even if you don't know what it is. Okay, and yet the book is saying that trauma doesn't exist. So I want to share a quote from the book and get into that. It says, no experience is in itself a cause of our success or failure. We do not suffer from the shock of our experiences, the so-called trauma, but instead we make out of them whatever suits our purposes. We are not determined by our experiences, but the meaning we give to them is self-determining. So it's like saying, you know, because of my childhood trauma or because of XYZ that happened, I cannot now form healthy relationships as an adult. So you are putting meaning to your experiences and you're saying because of this, I'm adding the meaning that I now cannot have this. So it argues that we actually create that meaning and that, you know, the experience itself can't cause something to be true. And what I think is interesting about this is, you know, I talk a lot about resilience. We can look at so many examples, people who have gone to war, okay? I'm kind of, I'm making this up, but some people come back from war and they're so traumatized, they're never able to become, nor like go back to how they were or live some sort of normal life. Whereas other people who experience the same things can come back and they can kind of make something of it or they can rewire their brains or they can come out the other side and be able to be somewhat normal again or get back to their old self and it's like okay well what's different between person a and person b how come this person couldn't and this person could right and yes there's different experiences and people internalize things differently but again in a way that is us putting meaning to it or I think about how in terms of injury my knee the first time I injured my knee it was a lot harder for me the second time you'd think I'd be more upset and more like angry about it but I've worked so much on my mindset that me injuring my knee and needing surgery 
the meaning I chose to put that on it wasn't, oh, this sucks. Now I'm, I can't exercise. I can't do this. I can't do that. And it's all because of this that therefore I can't be my healthiest self, whatever. That's me putting meaning to the event. But that's not what I chose to do. The meaning I put onto it was this happened for a reason. This injury and this surgery is giving me downtime to slow down and to really be present and to think about what I want out of life and to take action on that. And I'm really grateful for this time that I'm being forced to slow down. And it's taught me a lot. But again, that's the meaning that I chose to put on that. So it's interesting to think of this concept of trauma doesn't exist, but we put the meaning onto things that like serves our own purpose. And this is another thing the book talks about, which is really interesting is, so the youth keeps giving an example of his friend who's like stays at home and he's afraid to go outside. And he's like, well, why would my friend put that meaning on himself of, oh, I can't go outside or I'm too afraid to go outside. You know, it's because of his trauma that he can't go outside. And the philosopher is saying, well, he actually doesn't want to go outside because he wants to feel pity. He wants to feel the self-pity. He wants to feel the sense of comfort in what he's doing. And so when you give meaning to something negative and you say, oh, well, I can't do this because of my trauma, you're allowing yourself to not change. And you're basically saying, well, it's not because of me. It's just I can't. Or I have this problem. I can't change it. So it allows you to be off the hook. Well, if you can't change, then you don't have to change. And so people will use that kind of as an excuse. And I thought that was really interesting. So again, and it's not to say that horrible experiences in childhood or in life don't have an effect on us because that is absolutely not true but the argument is that we determine our own lives according to the meaning that we give our past experiences okay I want to say that one again we determine our own lives according to the meaning we give to those past experiences If you choose to have a lesson in everything and no matter what bad thing happens to you, you can take it as a lesson and learn from it, then that is how your life will be. On the other hand, if you choose to look at things as all these bad things that keep happening to you, then that is what they'll be. Another argument in the book I want to get into is that we fabricate anger. We fabricate anger. Okay, think of like the most reactive you've ever been. Something happened and you just blew your top or you got so angry or you hit something or punched a wall or threw something across the room, hit someone, okay? This is this concept of action or reaction versus response. And I've done a whole podcast episode on what I feel is the difference between reacting to things and responding. Reaction being kind of this immediate thing that is often negative and often uncontrollable. Whereas a response is something that you think about. You know, you you analyze what just happened. Even if it's quick, you analyze what just happened, you take a breath, 
and you kind of think about how you want to respond, okay? And an example I give is the fight versus flight response. So if there's a bear in the woods, you're not going to sit and analyze the situation and respond. You're probably going to react and it's probably going to be a quick thing to, oh my gosh, I got to get out of here or whatever. But even in everyday things, a lot of people can be reactive. Something small and convenient happens and suddenly you're pissed off and you're angry and you're blowing your top. Someone says something rude to you and you kind of snap at them. Okay, so these are these reactive reactive feelings. Now what the book says is that we fabricate anger. And even when you say, oh, you know, I just, I couldn't help myself. I just blew my top out of nowhere. I just got so angry and I, I was in this uncontrollable anger. But that is controllable. And the book argues that you can always control how you respond to things. And an interesting example the book gives is an example of a mother yelling at her daughter. So let's say there's a mother and a daughter at the park. The daughter does something that the mother doesn't like. The mother yells at her. She's yelling. And then her phone rings. And she picks up the phone. Hi, this is Jean. Oh, yes, we're just at the park. How about I give you a call later? Okay, great. Okay, bye. Ah, And then goes back to yelling at her daughter. So you're going to tell me that she was in an uncontrollable rage or uncontrollable yelling anger towards her daughter when she just then paused, picked up the phone in her normal telephone voice. So it's this idea that even in these moments of uncontrollable anger, we actually can control because she could make the conscious choice of knowing, well, I'm not going to yell when I pick up the phone. However, I can yell at my daughter. So it's kind of, again, this context contextual thing of like what meaning we put to things or when it's okay to be acting in a certain way um so it's really like she's choosing to yell at her daughter even if she thinks it's this response to whatever the daughter did you always have a choice and I like this idea especially because as someone who I've talked about this so many times I've never been naturally patient. Growing up, I was not patient. I wanted things quickly. I was very competitive about everything. I wanted to win. I still am competitive, don't get me wrong. However, I will say that I've actively learned how to be more patient and I've brought patience into my life as a core value and something that's really important to me. I also choose to surround myself with patient people because when I'm around people who are not very patient, I tend to be less patient. And I prefer being around patient people who kind of also help me be patient and like level-headed, etc. So, but it's a choice. And I genuinely believe that I have chosen to be more patient in my life as something that I could have argued, oh, well, I've never been patient. I'm just not a patient person. That's just not me, right? And blaming it on, well, when I was a kid, this is how I was, so that's how I am now, right? That goes back to our self-determining viewpoints. 
it's not our trauma, it's not what happens to us that determines everything, but it's what meaning we choose to put onto those things. The next thing that feeds into this and what I just talked about is personality and disposition. So your personality, the book argues, is your lifestyle. Your personality is your lifestyle. And lifestyle is the tendencies of thought and action in life. So the way you choose to think and the way you choose to act, and I would also add the way you speak to yourself and other people, so your thoughts, your actions, your words, that's your lifestyle. And in turn, your lifestyle is kind of like your personality. So it's kind of like how we see the world and how we see ourselves is how we are. If I continue to see myself as an impatient person and that's how I identify, then that would mean my habits and my actions in life, my tendencies, my lifestyle is likely to need things quickly, to be overly competitive about certain things, to not be patient. So if those are my tendencies, then that's my lifestyle and that's therefore my personality. But what happens when you choose to change your tendencies, your habits? I become someone who practices patience. I take a breath before I respond. I actively choose to be better at listening and I don't cut people off in conversation which I used to struggle with a lot and still sometimes do. I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. <laughs> um, so suddenly I've changed my habits, my tendencies, and that kind of means I'm changing my lifestyle because now I'm not someone who needs things right away, but I'm patient. Is that not also now my personality? Because so many people will blame things on their personality. Oh, well, that's just how I am. And I think anyone can change, but they have to want to change and it has to come from them. I think a lot of people see the potential in someone and they're like, wow, you know, this person could be this. And they have this idea that they could change this person. And yet, do I believe change is possible? Absolutely. I've seen it in myself in countless ways. I've seen it in other people in countless ways. But it has to come from you. You have to want to change. You have to be ready to change and willing to, to put in the work. It's not easy to change, especially when you are thinking about how you've naturally been since childhood. Yeah, it's going to be hard. It's not going to be like, oh, I want to be patient. That's it. I'm going to be patient. No, you have to put in the work. You have to practice patience in different ways, in different settings, with different people. Think about what that actually means to you to be patient. And that is what's going to drive change. Another example from the book is someone who says like, oh, I'm a pessimist. Or they tend to have a pessimistic negative outlook on life. So that's their view. That's their outlook of the world. And then maybe naturally because that's how they see the world, well, their tendency, their lifestyle is to look at things negatively. Yeah, you might say that's their personality. 
But as soon as that person learns how to become a little bit more optimistic, that's not their personality anymore. So it's this idea of kind of, I think, separating your personality as this thing that's set in stone. Because if, as the book says, your personality is just your lifestyle and your lifestyles, your tendencies and your habits of thought and action, well, as soon as I change my thought and action, I can technically change my personality. So definitely food for thought there. I definitely agree with that point that anyone can change and you don't have to be stuck in your ways and you don't have to use that as an excuse. Oh, well, I've always been like this, so that's just how it is. Because I'm... Again, living proof, I'm vastly different than how I was three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, especially the last three years has been massive change. Massive change. And look at me now. <laughs> Patient and perfect. Just kidding. Okay. Um, one more concept I want to share from the book, and then I'm going to get into some counter arguments is that all problems are interpersonal relationship problems. And this is a big one. And this is challenging, I think. For me, this was the most challenging point to wrap my head around. And I think for the youth in the book, talking to the philosopher, this was the one that he really challenged a lot. So all problems are interpersonal relationship problems. What does that mean? It means that any problem you have in life can be related to how you view yourself in regard to others. And this idea that we cannot live without other people. Other people are inevitably going to be a part of our lives. And inevitably, as we get involved with other people, whether it's a friendship, relationship, career, you know, workplace setting, family, People are going to hurt you and you are going to hurt people. I think that's an inevitable part of life. Whether they want to or not, you know, we naturally are going to get hurt in some way, shape, or form. And the book talks a lot about like having an inferiority versus superiority complex and how we compare ourselves to others and how often this comparison can be really negative and hold us back. That any problem we face can be related in some way back to our interpersonal relationships. So let's go back to the example from the book of the guy, the friend who couldn't leave his room. So this friend has this belief that he can't leave his room. He gets too anxious. He's afraid of the sunlight, whatever it is. I don't remember exactly, but he's afraid to leave his room. So he really just stays in his room. I think his parents bring him food. And he doesn't really leave. Okay, well, how could this be related to his interpersonal relationships? Well, maybe he believes that if he goes out into the world, if he puts himself out there, he'll be rejected. That he has no friends. That no one could ever, you know, love him. Or no one could ever accept him. And yet his parents aren't necessarily pushing him to be different. Maybe they try to encourage him to get out there but the book also argues that you have your role to play and that you cannot make decisions for other people and this kind of goes back to you can want to change but that change has to come from within yourself you can't just have someone else forcing you to change that's not their role 
So their role is to worry about themselves and how they can contribute, but your role is to fix yourself. I hope this is making sense. Um, And this kind of goes back to what I talked about at the beginning of this in terms of individual psychology and the goal of contributing to others. And this is where it confused me a little bit, not going to lie, because the book talks about different roles and how even a parent and a child, it's not the parent's job to force the child to do anything, but it should be the child who discovers things for themselves. Now that's kind of a scary thought because of course as a parent, you're probably going to want the best for your child. You're going to want them to go to school. You're going to maybe force them to eat their vegetables. But the book is kind of saying it's not your job to force things on your child. You can encourage them, but it has to come from them and their willingness. You know, let's say there's someone who struggles at school and they're just not getting it or they don't like it. The more a parent tries to force it on their kid, it's not really going to change the fact that the child's not enjoying it. And if the child is to gain pleasure and learn to love school, it has to come from their own accord. Okay? So that's this idea of like the separation of tasks, they call it. So you have your tasks, other people have their tasks, and you can't force other people to do their tasks. Okay? However, the book then says all problems are interpersonal problems and the goal is to be contributing to others. And that the more we contribute to society, we feel good. So something that something that confused me was the idea that, well, if my goal is to contribute to others, but in a way where I'm separating my tasks, how is that becoming an interpersonal connection? And I don't think the book ever really got to this question. But I think the way I'm going to interpret it is that when you're contributing to society and you want to be a kind person, you want to contribute in some way, it comes from your own accord of what can I give? You know, what can I bring this world? What positive impact can I have? And that is in turn coming from you. And your goal when you're contributing to others isn't to force other people to do certain things a certain way. But again, it's coming from this is how I can contribute out of love for other people and love for my community. Now, before we end off today, because I've just shared a lot in favor of this concepts of this book and individual psychology, and there are a lot of things I do agree with to an extent, but I want to talk about trauma a little bit because I'm currently reading a book which just happened to be very insightful into this topic. So I'm reading a story called A Little Life. And the story follows four men, kind of from their university into adult life, who were roommates. And it kind of follows their journey. And the main character had a really, really traumatizing, excruciatingly painful childhood. And he has these deep-rooted beliefs that people will always leave him. He suffered. There was an accident in his life. It still hasn't been revealed to me exactly what happened. It was a car injury. But he doesn't frame it as an accident because I don't think it was an accident. And now his legs, he'll never have proper functioning in his legs. He has these, this really 
painful body. He feels like his body has kind of, his body owns him in a way. He also suffers, he cuts himself on a regular basis. He doesn't feel worthy and he can't express his feelings to the people in his life. So even his best friend out of the four guys, one of them is closest to him. There's certain things that you see in his internal dialogue, but he never expresses it. And later in life, he ends up being adopted by, well, I won't get into it, but he ends up, you know, and it shares his feeling around this adoption where he still doesn't feel worthy and he still struggles like, you know, what if they really knew who I am or who I, who I was or the things that I did. And he, and he just blames himself so much for all that happens in his childhood. And it's eye-opening because this is someone who's so deep-rooted in their beliefs that they cannot express themselves and they cannot see it from another way and they cannot learn to have these feelings of worthiness. And one thing I'll say is his doctor in the book really keeps pushing him to go to therapy and learn to talk about it with someone because these are things he's like never talked about. And it was only like child services, one child services agent that really knew everything and then she passed away and she told him, you need to start talking about this because the longer you wait, the harder it will be. And essentially this character, at least where I am in the book, it's a very long book. I still have a lot to go. But from into his 30s, late 30s, he cannot express himself. He just can't. He has never learned to open up because he has this deep-rooted belief that if people really knew what happened, they'd look at him differently and they wouldn't be there for him. They would not be able to accept him. Even though these are things that happened to him and they're not his fault, right? And I think a lot of people would would see it that way but he can't and it's interesting because I think there's so many things and even the war example I gave earlier is people who go to war I'm so amazed you know at the fact that people can even go to war and withstand the trauma that happens and to come back and be able to even somewhat normally be integrated into society and Going back to what they said about trauma doesn't exist, but it's the associations we make that kind of determine how we allow these experiences to affect us. And I do believe that to an extent, but I also totally understand why people who've gone through some really, really, really terrible things, it's naturally, it makes sense that it's going to be harder for these people to undo that. And... Something that I really wish for this character was that he would go to therapy and learn to talk about it because I think it's in this ability to connect with others and to open up and be vulnerable that we learn that people will be there for us. And I think until you do that, you can't form a new belief, right? If my belief is that no one will ever care about my story or no one will be able to love me once they know what happened in my childhood, if you never try, if you never learn to open up and at least try and see how people respond, I think you'll never be able to form a new belief. And I talk a lot about vulnerability and just the ability to open up. And 
it's so crazy how in this book these four characters they have this such this they have this such deep friendship and yet a common theme is that they don't open up to each other and that there's things that the main characters like best friend the other main character really fights with himself he's like why didn't I ask him why didn't I force him to talk to me about why he cuts himself why didn't I you know yeah I showed up for him and I was always there when he needed me but I never really knew what happened and I never asked and I don't know it just makes me think about how we really need to be able to build interpersonal connections that are deep and that are open and I think this book is a beautiful example of how it can be more challenging for men to be able to do this because even though they all have their own kind of issues and their own challenges that they went through in in childhood and in life and yet it's this main character where you see like no one really knows what happened to him and yet no one really asks or forces him to kind of speak his truth because they know that he doesn't want to and it's uncomfortable for him so they don't push him on it and it's interesting because sometimes I feel like I keep being like oh I wish he would I wish he would force it on him I wish he would tell him to open up because I think that's when you can start to form these different beliefs and I don't know it's not, I don't know if I totally can say trauma doesn't exist but I definitely think that you can learn to rewire the way you think about it and whatever happens in your life, you can build resilience and you can build, you know, the ability to be more present and to just stop dwelling so much on the past and worrying about the future. And this is something this main character just is stuck in. He can't stop himself from reliving this trauma and you know he he just truly does not believe that he has any worth really and it's so sad to see so the book's called a little life and it's a really beautiful story um highly recommend it but yeah I guess that's kind of where I wanted to end not on like a super sad note but I guess the point of this was I really do think we all have the ability to change if it comes from within yourself and you want to change and you want to improve your life. And no matter what your beliefs are, I really think that you can choose to have different beliefs. It's going to take some time and it starts with kind of our thoughts into our words, into our actions. Um, But it's possible. And so I guess stay tuned for the things that I have coming up and coming out very soon I have a lot I'm working on that are going to really help you with your mindset and kind of dive deeper into how we can start shifting our mindset and these are again all things based on what I've learned and research I've done so I'm gonna end this here I hope you guys have a beautiful start to your new year highly recommend these two books the courage to be disliked and a little life because I think They both go well together. One provides, you know, this great look into individual psychology and the other is a really good real life. It's a story, but it's a good look into these characters' lives and how, you know, they struggle with different things and you can think about it for yourself of how you think 
things could go and how you can bring this into your own life of where can I improve? Where can I maybe dig a little deeper with my friendships? Because we always say it's the happiest people on the outside too that seem to be really struggling and we never really know what people are going through. And so I urge you to talk to someone. No matter what it is going on in your life, happy or sad, you should have at least someone that you can talk to about these things. And, you know, I've talked about this before, but not being afraid to open up to people in your life. The right people are going to be there for you. The people who truly love you want to help you and want to see you become your best self. So trust those people. Hold on to those people and open up to those people because you should not hold everything in and you should learn to express yourself. The more we practice, again, it's all a practice. The more you practice opening up and talking to people about things, the easier it becomes. So I'm going to leave this here. Hope you guys have a beautiful week. Stay tuned for something exciting coming very soon. I'm going to probably announce it next week. And I'll chat with you soon.